the thing I, I am probably the most angry about, but, but also is something that uh, millions of Americans go through all the time. And, and I, I don't think the general population realizes that that is, that is a thing that happens. And so in the midst of all of that, you know, I was, um, like I said, a full-time student, you know, I was working, I had a daughter and I had just found out that I was pregnant with my second daughter and had probably the busiest school schedule I had ever had. And so it was just kind of like the hardest time in my life. And um, so I guess that makes for good memoir. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the newest episode of the Friends in Fiction Writers Block podcast. We are beyond honored today to welcome a writer whose memoir and work offers an unflinching look at life below the poverty line. Her ability to pull back the curtain with honest portrayal of her experience has struck a nerve with readers everywhere. We cannot wait to speak with Stephanie Land. I am Ron Block. And I'm Meg Walker. Stephanie Land is an American author and activist whose writing focuses on social and economic justice, as well as parenting under the poverty line. Her debut book, Made, Hard Work, Low Pay, and A Mother's Will to Survive, was a New York Times bestseller and was adapted into an absolutely riveting limited series on Netflix. The book details Land's personal experience with poverty, relying on government assistance programs to support herself and her daughter. It received critical acclaim and was included on Barack Obama's summer reading list of 2019. The Netflix series adaptation reached 67 million households in its first four weeks and became the streaming service's fourth most watched show in 2021. Land's work has been featured in numerous outlets, and she is a frequent speaker at colleges and national advocacy organizations. Her second book, Class, A Memoir of Motherhood, Hunger, and Higher Education, has just been published. Welcome to the podcast, Stephanie. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. We're thrilled to have you. We are thrilled to have you, yes. Um, First up, I just want to congratulate you on the publication and the huge success of the book. It got a Publishers Weekly starred review. I love that Esquire said, and it's this is spot on, expect to be enraged and inspired. That little sentence says it all for me. <laughs> and you also, uh, some other little small thing that happened, you became the GMA November book club pick. How on earth do you navigate all this attention? <laughs> uh, well... <laughs> Some of it I have been able to prepare for 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 very, a long time, so it's been hard to uh, not tell people about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> so, in that sense, it's kind of a relief to be able to talk about it finally. Um, but I, I do have a uh, a person who helps me with my social media and 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 all of that, and and a whole team of people who send me roundups of all the things that people are saying about me. And, 
So I, I do have a lot of assistance in, in keeping track of things. I'm so proud of the GMA pick. I, they hardly ever pick nonfiction and to pick right. such an important book. I just was, I'm so happy. <laughs> Good yeah. My first, uh, when I heard about it, I was actually on vacation. We were taking our very first family vacation like ever. And <laughs> when they told me, my first question was, did, did they read it? <laughs> it's it's kind of a spicy book, and and I yeah, so I I was uh, a little confused for a second there. <laughs> then well, uh, then hopefully you went. I'll take it. Yeah, right. <laughs> you definitely don't turn it on or like that down. No, no. Um, all right, so let's start by talking about how the book came about. Can you share an overview of the slice of your life that's that's in the book class. And, and we've read it was a struggle to land on the particular time in your life that you write about. So tell us about how the idea formed and, and why you decided to expose this piece of your life. So I think the thing that really drove me to write about this particular year was there's a moment in the book where I'm actually, um, I find out that I am kicked off of food stamps um, because uh, I had a child who was now over six years old. And so, um, because of that, the work requirements for food stamps kicked in, um, because I was now considered an able-bodied adult, um, without dependents, um, even though she was very, still, <laughs> still very much a dependent, um, yeah. Six-year-olds tend to be a little dependent. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the um, the hours that I spent in school, I was a full-time student, um, didn't count toward the work requirements. And, and I was only able to work about 15 hours a week instead of the 20 that I was required to do. Um, and so because of that, I was kicked off of food stamps. And and that was a very um, fundamental moment in, in my life. You know, it was um, something that... I, I still kind of struggle with, uh, to be told, um, if, if you don't work enough, then you can't eat. Um, and, and that, that kind of messaging doesn't really leave you. Uh, and, and so that part of the, um, of my story was, uh, the thing I, I am probably the most angry about, but, but also, is something that uh, millions of Americans go through all the time. And, and I, I don't think the general population realizes that that is, that is a thing that happens. And so in the midst of all of that, you know, I was, um, like I said, a full-time student, you know, I was working, I had a daughter and I had just found out that I was pregnant with my second daughter and had probably the busiest school schedule uh, I had ever had. And so it was just kind of like the hardest time in my life. And um, so I guess that makes for good memoir. <laughs> it makes for excellent memoir. And the whole story is, is just cyclical and horrifying and everything you went through. And I, I'm i just uh, reading it just was, it blew my mind that, that we live in this country. Yeah. It, yes. And to know that you're one of many that this kind of thing is happening to it's got to be enraging and and you have a voice and a beautiful way with words so thank you for for using that to tell this story to speak to speak to millions of people's experiences right right 
Um, so, Stephanie, one of the things that's I, I just I, brave isn't enough to, of a word to say, but you write really openly and honestly about your life, and you basically pull no punches. Uh, when it came to writing class, did you find it easier to tell your story, or, or did you find that there were topics that were more difficult to share? The part of this book that I really struggled with was just the events surrounding the conception of my youngest daughter. Um, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say I, I didn't know who the father was. Um, and and that's something that she cannot consent to the world knowing. Um, you know, she's, she's nine. Uh, and as much as I have tried to uh, explain to her, <laughs> you know, like, uh, <laughs> how these things come about, how she came about into existence. And, you know, um, every time I try to talk to her about it, she just starts saying like, please, please stop talking, mom, please stop talking. <laughs> She's shutting it down. <laughs> <clears throat> um, because my, my husband adopted her and, um, she was five. So, Good. um, it's, uh, been, he's just always kind of been her dad. Um, right. and so th that's one of the things that I really struggled with. And, but when it came down to it, you know, I, I wrote the story that I needed to hear during that time. Um, cause I was, I was so alone and, and so full of shame and, and guilt in a lot of ways. And so, um, I, uh, I, I wrote the book that, that I really needed at that time. Wow. That's so powerful. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about, you know, you, you recall this period of your life in such vivid detail. So uh, I would love to know how, how did you have that power of recall? Um, Cause it's, it feels really powerful as a reader it really draws us in and, you know, as if we are living it along with you. Right. Um, I'm a very, visual writer i'll uh i i have the ability to not just recall events but um i can i don't know uh mentally put myself in a room or you know in in a scene that i'm writing about um and so it's it's really easy for me to um almost to the point where I can feel things like I'll, um, I'll be able to sit at our dining room table that we had, uh, and look around and see, you know, crumbs on the counter. Uh, I can like visually, you know, in my head, like look through stacks of papers. Um, I can like recall what it smelled like, what it felt like. Um, and, and so in that way, it's, it's kind of easy for me to, um, bring the reader in as well and just kind of um, not necessarily like give them a tour of my house, but like, <laughs> uh, because I, I can see it so clearly then, then I can write it very clearly too. That's great. That's pretty amazing. That's a gift. I think that for people to have that kind of recall and, and I think that's yeah. probably what makes a good memoirist. <laughs> yes. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> So one of the main driving themes in your work is resilience, and it's throughout your story. Where do you think that that came from for you? What's the essence of that? Um, 
Well, so I, I normally, uh, my day job is, is a public speaker. Um, and a lot of the organizations that I end up speaking for, um, the, the nonprofits, um, they, they throw around this, um, word resilience a lot. Um, and, and I had heard it over the years too. Um, you know, people trying to reassure me that children are resilient and, and that, never really sat well with me because I was like, well, no, it's not that they're resilient. It's just, they don't have the language skills to express how stressed out they are. And so that translates as resilience. Um, and, and children, you know, we, we shouldn't, I don't think we should assume that they are tough enough to withstand, um, poverty and, and food insecurity and, um, it just seemed a little backwards to me. And then um, I actually read an interview by um, Emmy uh, Neffield. Uh, she wrote the book Accepted uh, or Acceptance. Um, right. And and she said that uh, resilience is the same thing as acceptance. Um, and and I, I read that like right before I was going to go out to my she shed in the backyard to spend the day, hopefully writing. Um, and, um, I ended up doing this whole soapbox thing of, uh, just really taking down, um, this word resilience and, and what it felt like it meant to me. Um, and that was really, um, telling me to, not only accept the minimal amounts of government assistance I was receiving, but to be grateful for it and to mm. smile and, um, to, um, I felt like I had to make myself very small and, um, and almost like an Oliver twist type of character. Um, I was not allowed to be angry. Um, at the time it, it wasn't very, um, useful to be angry because it didn't really get me anywhere. It actually got me less, um, mm. because angry people are often ignored and, and pushed out of the room. Um, and so it gave me kind of a, a moment to realize, uh, that I am still very angry and, and now I have the ability to, to express that and, and let everybody know that, that I'm, I'm mad. I guess. So no, that's maybe good. you're more maybe you're more righteous than resilient. Then. <laughs> maybe, but thanks for sharing that because that that just kind of opened my thinking quite a bit, and I hope our listeners will will think about that as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, Stephanie, you recently shared through an epic New York Times opinion piece that offers a stark view of how challenging it is to succeed in college. So, what was it like to give that overview and and what has been the um, general reaction to that? Um, the opinion piece is, is actually an excerpt from the book. Um, there's a chapter called Sitting in Class, um, and it just details, um, I don't know, to some it would be uh, normal, you know, I'm finishing up my break in between two classes and kind of mull over uh, a food purchase, you know, in the, uh, in the commons area, they have a store down there. And, um, 
and I'm going to class, I'm trying to stay awake. And then we get a break and I check my phone and uh, there are uh, several texts and calls from my roommate, who is uh, also my babysitter. Um, And I had forgotten that my daughter's school gets out an hour early on that day. And so um, she was in kindergarten and nobody was there to meet her at the bus stop when she got off the bus that afternoon. And, and so um, being the uh, person that she is, uh, she ran home uh, across a, a very busy street and saw that no one was there and then immediately turned around and, and ran to um, the house of another girl that was at the same bus stop with her. Um, and, and so suddenly, you know, I'm kind of uh, very drastically pulled out of this uh, kind of sleepy afternoon in class and um, about to have, you know, a, a panic attack in the hallway because uh, while I was just kind of sitting there, my daughter was out running back and forth across the street and, and no one was there to take care of her. Um, and, and that, that was, um, to me, uh, I mean, not necessarily that circumstance was normal, but, um, it was normal for me to be juggling, um, food insecurity and lack of childcare, um, and figuring out how I was going to pay rent, um, and constantly doing budgets, um, while I was also trying to pay attention, uh, to what my professor was trying to teach me. I actually, uh, we had our, um, book event, the book tour event in Missoula last night. And I went out with, um, that professor afterwards, uh, and, and she keeps apologizing and, uh, and just saying like, I didn't know, I'm so sorry. Um, and as much as I try to say like, well, nobody knew, like, I, I didn't want anyone to know that I was, um, different in that way, you know, that, uh, cause I already felt so out of place as a student. Um, she, uh, she said she still, feels really bad that, that she didn't know that I was going through that in right there in her classroom. Yeah. I mean, I, I could see why you would want to keep that struggle to yourself. Um, and you, you write about how those feelings of insecurity, food insecurity, childcare insecurity never go away. So how do you deal with that? Is that still an ongoing feeling? Yeah. I mean, there's, um, there's a lot of lasting trauma, um, that being very, um, extremely housing insecure, um, will, will bring, I mean, poverty is, you know, like I mentioned before the, um, having the government tell you that, uh, we're not going to give you money for food because you can't work hard enough. Um, (laughs) that, you know, is just one part of it. But I mean, there's, uh, uh, a constant worry that you're going to lose your home um, is is very all encompassing uh, and uh, very. I mean, it created anxiety, you know, PTSD. Um, I am I'm always going to 
um, have the lasting effects of that um, because nothing is truly safe for me. Um, you know, once you turn around and discover that you've lost everything and right. you don't have any safety net or invisible cushion underneath you um, and the hole that you've found yourself in is very deep and it's going to take a long time to claw mm. yourself out of it. Um, that, that feeling doesn't really leave you. Um, I mean, my husband uh, once lost everything in a flood, um, but he was able to move in with his parents um, and his sisters helped with childcare and um, they were able to uh, support him while he rebuilt, you know, what he had lost. Uh, and I, I didn't have that. I, I didn't have any, anything. Um, there was nobody that I could move in with if we suddenly found ourselves without a home. Yeah. Lack of a safety net, man. Yeah. And I, you know, I think any struggles like that just do stick with you. I think it frames the way you think about, you know, I think we, we all have our various to different extremes, right. Um, things that we've struggled with in the past. And I feel like, you know, I don't know, I, I can, Ron, Ron can relate to this too. I mean, we, I grew up with not very much and uh, I think it, no matter, no matter what shape your life takes, as you move through it, that really does frame so much of the way you think about things. So, I mean, I just admire you for sharing that. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things I love about the book is that it, it's, it helped me understand the struggles that my own mother went through to try to take care of us when we were little. We, we, I was one of five. And so that was a lot. And um, I really, I can see it differently now. So I appreciate that from your work. Thanks. I actually hear from a lot of children of single moms um, and uh, and just talking about the, what you said, how they are able to um, really know what their moms had gone through. Um, right. And I mean, even my daughter, uh, after she read um, Made, you know, said things to me like, I didn't know, I'm so sorry. I didn't know that you were going through this. And, um, of course that was never my intent, you know, right. but, right. um, we ended up having some conversations about that of, of, um, that no part of it was her fault or, or that, you know, I was struggling because she existed. Um, so, and that, you know, if anything, she was the best part of it. I love that. Well, That's wonderful. Clearly raising a very empathetic human, which is also important these days. It's very. Um, I, I think the readers of your books kind of fall into two camps, right? Like the readers who, who can't relate, but, but read your story and learn to be empathetic. And then there's those who can relate and, and see themselves on the pages. So can you tell us about the various reactions and the feedback that, that you've gotten? Well, honestly, I try to not look at the feedback. <laughs> um, Probably I mean, a good yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I learned, or I have learned, I am still learning to not look at Goodreads, especially, um, and Amazon reviews, and um, just because there are a lot of people who are still in the um, 
poor people can't have nice things camp. Um, and, and they really truly do believe that if you're poor, you should be living off of rice and beans, uh, never have any treats or, um, television. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or anything that most people, um, who have means would, would consider almost a necessity. Um, like there's the self-care culture, there's the, you know, it used to be treat yourself and, um, and it's, uh, people feel entitled to, uh, a break and, and to sit and watch mindless television and, um, and eat food that is more of a treat instead of, uh, you know, uh, sustenance. Yeah. Or I'm just thinking of like kale or something like (laughs) (laughs) kale is great and all, but like, you know, ice cream is better. Um, (laughs) um, and so there, there are a lot of opinions about that and, and people are very, um, uh, forceful about expressing those opinions sometimes. And so, um, when I went into, writing this book, um, it was very different from my first because I knew that those people existed. Um, I didn't really know that, um, to the, I mean, I did like I, when I was writing made, I had just gone viral, um, through Trump supporters. Um, Trump was newly elected. Um, and I wrote this essay, you know, about how, uh, since he was elected, I was going to kind of like hunker down and, and not date anymore. Like I broke up with this guy that I was dating and I was like, no, I just need to focus on my kids right now and kind of like grieve this, you know, the thing that just happened to us. And, um, and I went wildly viral to the point where I received death threats for a couple of weeks. And so gotta be kidding me. Oh, it was, it was horrible. And so I, I was writing, my book, um, during that time. And, and just kind of like reassured myself, like Trump supporters aren't going to read, aren't going to take time to read this book. Like, and, and, but then, you know, I still learned later that there are a lot of people who do read books, uh, like (laughs) mine and then take to places like Amazon and Goodreads reviews and, and sometimes even YouTube to make videos about it of just how much they, didn't like my story for um, certain reasons. And so when I was writing class, like um, as a writer, you know, you're, you do have the freedom to pick and choose the things that you include in your story. Um, And in made there's uh, um, I, I made the decision to include a, um, a, a diamond ring that I bought myself for like 200 bucks, uh, when I unexpectedly got this huge tax refund. Um, and I included that knowing that it was going to make people mad. Um, and, and it did. And, uh, and so in this book, it was just like, well, I'm, I'm just going to throw it all in there. <laughs> um, and, and just give them everything. But, um, uh, it's, it's still hard to do that because, you know, as I'm writing, I could almost hear this woman on Goodreads, like, like crying about like how and clutching her pearls and stuff. And so, uh, <laughs> I, um, I gave her a name, um, 
I started calling her Barbara from Michigan. I love that. Uh, oh, and, my gosh. Um, and like, I can see her, you know, I can smell her like hairspray, you know, and just uh, <laughs> like, and so she was there with me and I, and I, and it, so it gave me like a character a yeah. to get mad at and kind of tell her to shut up. And, um, I and love like, that. um, but I mean, the Barbaras did come out in, in the Goodreads reviews of this book. And, and the, one of the first ones was, um, she was really upset that I had given my daughter ice cream so much. Um, like there was a new ice cream shop that opened like a block away from our house and they had like a single scoop for like two bucks. Um, and so it became like a regular thing, you know, like, yeah, let's go down to sweet peaks and, and you can have a scoop of ice cream. Uh, and this lady was, was really upset that my daughter, um, had so much ice cream, um, when, <laughs> when I was food insecure. I don't mean to laugh, but my God. So, so that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, but it's also like, I, to me, it became kind of a, um, uh, an inside joke with, with myself of just like, because it says a lot more about them than it does about me. Yes. Like, like really, you, you really think that a five-year-old shouldn't have ice cream, you know? And, uh, why just like, it, it would be, it would be nice to like really have a conversation with someone like that and say, and ask them, like, tell me to my face, like why you think my daughter should not have ice cream. They want, it's like they want them to feel the pain and deprivation, like a child. What is wrong with what's teaching you that? What, <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Yeah. You know, um, I wonder what's wrong and, with and people like to, that. And then to feel superior, morally superior somehow to you when, there's a rotten black heart at the center of, of anyone who could think that way. Uh, it, it is infuriating. I love the barber from Michigan thing. I love I it. Too. <laughs> <laughs> now I want to go back and like fight <laughs> yeah. on, on, on or, Goodreads <laughs> yeah. or people like her anyway. anyway. Exactly. So Stephanie, is, is there like uh, one or two things that each of us and our listeners can, can think about doing to bring light to the situation that you highlight or, or how they can support change for this? Well, I think you, everybody has a lot of power in what they choose to post on, on social media um, and, and what they choose to talk about and what they choose to bring awareness of, um, you know, poverty has always been, uh, kind of a taboo subject, right. um, in the media. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, when, when city council or, you know, local discussions start, um, start up about like, should we offer affordable housing for the homeless population? Should we build uh, affordable housing? Should we build a warming center? Should we, you know, make uh, the outdoors more hospitable <laughs> uh, this, this time of year for, for the homeless population? Um, there's, there's the not in my backyard people that start yeah. um, getting very angry and vocal and, and there's not a lot of um, people speaking up in an empathetic way. Um, and 
And I think, you know, there's a lot of power in sharing lived experience and, and there's, there's a lot of power in just, um, calling people out for, for being a Barbara in Michigan and, um, and for being very judgmental and, um, forcing, um, human beings into inhumane situations just because they don't have any money. Um, and, and so I tell people, you know, there's, there's a lot that you can do there. Um, you know, I have a, there's some people in town here who will do like sock drives, um, this time of year and like gather up, um, winter coats. Um, you know, I'm in, I'm in Montana and, and there's already been snow on the ground here. So, um, and, and so there's, there's a lot of discussion in my local area about, you know, the, the homeless population, but I don't think a lot of people realize that the homeless population is standing next to them in the grocery store too. Um, and there's, uh, I, the last I saw it was 10% of college students are homeless and, um, one, one in four are hungry. And, and so the, the food insecurity and, and housing insecurity is not, um, unique. I mean, it's, it's very common for people to be food insecure. Um, and, and so, you know, when you start thinking in that way, you know, my, my neighbor could be, um, at, at the edge of housing insecurity. You know, there's, it's not, um, it's not a certain type problem, of person. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not those people. It's not, you know, and there's a lot of racism involved with poverty too. And how, um, we assume that, um, poor people are, are people of color a lot of the times and, or that they're violent, right? Like that, the talk I hear, you know, in my own town where there's, you know, affordable housing requirements and then the people who are opposed to anything like that coming right. to their town, I feel like saying like, what do you think? I mean, a teacher qualifies for affordable housing right now, <laughs> you know, a, a postal worker, a, a anybody. And that it doesn't necessarily mean like they, they're like, that's going to bring crime. It's going to bring this. It's going to bring that. Right. I, you know, and the, the judgment that goes into that is the comfort that must come from a place where that was never you or ever could have been you. Um, it's it's flabbergasting to me. Yeah, and and it's it's something that I will never fully understand or comprehend. Um, and good. so, you I know, think that's I, good. <laughs> you know, well, like, I, well, I don't want to. I don't want to understand how someone thinks that way. To be honest, like, it, it's their poison. You know. Yeah, but I mean, if if we can understand, like, why then, you know, there's there's a lot of stigmas that surround people in poverty, and and a, a lot of the work that I do is is trying to reverse those stigmas, and. Yeah. Um, especially with single moms. I mean, like I faced so much judgment and, um, was pushed out of a lot of social circles and, and, or just assumed that I was neglectful, um, or just not a good mom or, um, 
you know, I had made a lot of bad decisions and that's why I was in the place that I was. Um, and, and so, you know, moms already struggle enough in this country and then, you know, to have that added, um, instead of more support, it's less. Um, so I, I think there's, there's, you know, the lifting up personal narratives, um, and, and just sharing stories in a way that does evoke empathy, um, is, is a great way to start making change. I mean, you both have a lot of power in who you choose to have on your podcast. So, I mean, there's, there's just these little tiny decisions of who you choose to feature on whatever Mm. platform you have or in Mm. any conversation really, um, is, is where change will start. Well, let's, okay. That's a good segue to my question, um, here about, uh, made the Netflix series. So the national domestic violence hotline was mentioned after each episode of made and the hotline received more calls in the month of the show's premiere than in any other month in its entire 25 year history. Um, I think that illustrates the power of your story and how it resonates with so many people. I'd love to know how it felt for you to see that story come to life on TV in that way. And, and the impact you feel like it had on, on the culture. Um, it was not easy to watch by any means. Mm. Uh, so I, uh, received screeners, um, in like, I think it was like six months before the series actually came out. Um, it wasn't even like completely done editing. Um, there was still like every once in a while, there would be like a little note, like can see boom mic <laughs> and, and like <laughs> for like editing notes and stuff. Um, but the first two episodes uh, I watched with my daughter um, who, who now she goes by her name store or middle name story. Um, so we, sat in my bed under the covers and watched it on my laptop. Um, uh, just the two of us. Cause I, I didn't really know what it was going to be like to watch this visual representation. Um, right. I didn't, I knew that they were going to focus a lot on the emotional abuse aspect. Um, and, uh, I knew that they set out to show that emotional abuse is truly violence. Um, and, um, so I, I was nervous about, um, not just me, but how she would, um, um, I don't know, fare through, through watching all of that. Um, and it was really hard. It, It was really, um, it was really triggering. Um, Nick Robinson, the, the actor who plays her dad, uh, has a very uncanny resemblance <laughs> oh, wow. to her dad. And um, so it was really hard to watch. Um, there's a couple of scenes where um, you're looking at Nick Robinson, you know, from Alex's point of view and he's like standing over her and yelling. Um, and that that I mean, story asked me after those first two episodes is like, is that, is that what he was really like? And you know, I, I said, yeah, that's, that's pretty, pretty darn close. Um, so it was, um, it, it was, it was really difficult to watch. And uh, I, I don't know if it was an enjoyable experience, you know, like, uh, for, mm. for me, 
to see it. Um, and, and it, it was just like a really complicated, um, slew of emotions, uh, to, to see this. And then, you know, I had, uh, a lot of people who were really excited to watch it and, and that kind of messed me up too. Yeah. Like you're, oh. you're excited to watch like the most horrible things that have ever happened to me. Um, but then, you know, when it came out, there was, um, there was such a response to it that, uh, you know, I, I went from having, I think like 6,000 followers on Instagram to almost, uh, 70,000, like kind of overnight. Um, and people were sharing in the comments, like how, um, how much they saw themselves, how much they realized that they were in a violent relationship, like, um, how they realized that they needed to leave, um, how a past relationship was actually violent. Um, and it wasn't like them or anything that they were doing. Uh, and I was talking to my friend about it. And I was just like, wow, like, it's kind of unbelievable how many people are are seeing themselves in this story. And, and she said, yeah, Stephanie, it's almost like one in four women go through partner violence. And I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. it was, it was, it was a startling um, thing for me, you know, and it, it became uh, kind of unbearable uh, to, um to to see those stories uh constantly to, in in the like, comment sections on uh, on just my own Instagram account um it was um my doctor called it a uh, secondary trauma um ooh. when you are triggered by um a, another person's trauma uh and it kind of you uh, your body absorbs it as trauma happening to you um and so it it was um I mean, there was a, there was a lot of stuff going on and, you know, it was 2021, we were still kind of in the pandemic and, and, and all of that too. And it was just, uh, it was, uh, something that I, I'm glad that I can have some distance from it now <laughs> to talk about it. Um, uh, because at the time it was, it was, it was really, um, it was really difficult for me. And, and I'm sure a lot of other people to, to learn that about themselves too, and the relationship that they're in. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I, I, I recognize how difficult it must've been to, to watch that and then to listen to people's stories. But I, I do applaud you for, for, for sharing the stories to begin with, because um, it was, I think just really important Um you know, the book is one thing, but then when, when it took on a life of its own with Netflix, it re you reach so many more people that way. And, um, right. you know, my family watched it and, and I, I would never say I was excited for each new episode. Like that's not the right word, but it, it just felt important and powerful. And we right. were riveted to your story. And, um, I think it was really eye opening. So, um, I hope you, I hope you take some good feelings away from that, knowing that you helped people um, to, to see their, their own stories, but also to see the way other people live and to become more empathetic. Like, you know, my, my teenagers watched it with us and I, th I think it's, you know, it's eye opening for, uh, for kids to, to see the way other people live. And um, you did a really good job 
and you know, I just think it was important and I'm, and I'm proud of you and um, glad it's out there, even if it was hard. <laughs> and, and I also heard from a lot of people too, that it made them feel not alone anymore, that they had something in common and they, that they, that there was hope. And I, I think that people took a lot of really great things away from your work. Absolutely. But, um, unfortunately, we are on it. We could do this all day and yeah. I'd be happy to do a part two with you, but um, just a huge thanks for joining us today. You like echoing what Meg said, you're a beacon of hope for so many, your bravery and your tenacity and strength, just give hope to people. We're so happy that we got a chance to talk to you about this and everything else and continued success with all the work that you do. But just before we let you go, can you tell people where they can find you online and connect and learn more? Yeah, um, I am Stepville, uh, just about everywhere. Uh, so S-T-E-P-V-I-L-L-E. -L -L -E. um, my website is stepville.com and then Instagram, uh, what used to be Twitter. Uh, and I think I'm even on threads and blue sky, like everywhere. Uh, same handle everywhere. Yeah. Great, great. Great. Thank you so much for being with us today. We, we can't even express how grateful we are. Yes. Thank you. We're happy to have you. And our continued thanks to our listeners. You continually make us smile with your support and your comments. It's so appreciated. Please go and grab a copy of Class at our friendsinfictionbookshop.org page. It's a powerful book that will truly touch your heart and mind. Tune in every Friday for a new episode here, and please be sure to share with a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here.